When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Begin transmission in 3, 2, 1. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greer Jackson. This time we're journeying to the ruby red planet, Mars. Elon Musk thinks he'll have people there by 2024. NASA will be following closely behind with plans to get people there in the 2030s. That means that in our lifetime, we will become an interplanetary species. But what will it be like for those brave individuals? That's what we're finding out on the podcast today. First things first, the when. To me, six years seems like an incredibly ambitious timeline, given the fact that Elon Musk's Falcon rockets have exploded repeatedly, and that's not forgetting the European Space Agency's crash landing onto the Martian surface. If we can't get cargo on or off the ground, how the heck will we get humans there? My name is Stephen Petranik. I wrote the book How We'll Live on Mars. How will we live on Mars? Very (laughs) successfully and much sooner than anyone expects. Not all people share my opinion then. And I have to admit, look at what we achieved in the 60s with the Apollo missions. Still, I was ready to put Stephen through his paces. Well, Elon Musk says he'll land people on Mars in 2024. I'm giving him uh, about a two-year break, so maybe 2026, 2027. He's the most optimistic person on the face of Earth. Um, I honestly think that there's a better than 90% chance that there'll be people on Mars by 2030. But the real kicker is how many people will be on Mars by 2050. Because by 2050, if Musk is correct in his estimates, he'll have 1,000 rockets leaving at one time, each with 80 people in them. That's 80,000 people going to Mars in one trip. So it's highly conceivable that by 2040 there are 10,000 people on Mars and very conceivable by 2050 there's 100,000 people on Mars. And you're going to need a million people to actually create another civilization and a real backup for humans. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But I just want to unpick this 2027 because, I mean, we've had problem after problem. I'm thinking with the Falcon rockets that are, the last one exploded back in September, right? And then we've just had the ESA Mars rover crash land onto Mars, not to mention don't Beagle. Get me, don't I get mean, me started on ESA and Beagle. <laughs> if we can't get, you know, rovers to Mars now, if this is only 10 years away, this, how are we going to get people? This is a matter of money. 
and it's a matter of playing the odds in the space game. Rockets are binary. They work or they don't work. About 20% of the time, they don't work. We had two shuttles that went down with eight people in each one of them. This is a dangerous business. It's not like getting in an airplane. There was a time when getting in an airplane was almost as risky as going to Mars. And going to Mars is going to be very risky for a long time. But that is not going to stop anyone from going. Well, why wouldn't it, though? Why do we even want to go? Well, we really need a backup for civilization on Earth. I mean, we are long overdue for being hit by a major asteroid, uh, larger than the one that took out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. There's a 100% probability of that. And that's just one of many, many, many extinction events for humans on Earth. And we also know that Earth is going to look a lot like Mars in about 100 million years. There isn't going to be an atmosphere here. It's going to be a cold place. There isn't going to be any, all the water on the surface will be frozen. Um, we've spent 95% of our existence as humans moving beyond the horizon into the next wilderness because it's a matter of survival. And we have to learn to be a spacefaring species and move on to other planets and then move on to other solar systems. I mean, frankly, think of everything we've accomplished, you know, in art and culture and learning. And to have all of that just kind of literally get exploded and go up in smoke one day from an asteroid is crazy. I'm sort of imagining something like Noah's Ark. Um, surely all these beautiful, amazing things that nature has made should be coming along with us too, right? That's Otherwise, a, that's a very human-centric view of things. Yeah, that, that's a very good question as to whether or not you, what kind of life forms you want to take with you. I don't think we're really going to have a lot of choice about that over the long haul because, um, first of all, there's about 100 million different uh, living creatures in your gut right now, and um, they're coming with you. Um, you know, they. What about my cat. Your cat, <laughs> your cat may not come with you. Your cat may be a very expensive trip for your cat. May cost you a hundred thousand dollars to take your cat. If we find that we can create a good environment for living on Mars relatively easily, and that Mars can become its own economic system and be self-supporting and self-sustaining, it will be very interesting what kinds of animals we choose to put on that ark and bring with us. I'm wondering if people will bring their Tamagotchis as a surrogate instead. Do you remember Tamagotchis? No. <laughs> they were like these little toys that we had. I had when I was about 10. So oh, yeah, 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 where you had to press their buttons every so often to keep them alive. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you had to pick up their poo, otherwise yes, they yes, died yes, and all sorts yes, of yeah, things yeah. like that. Teaching responsibilities yeah, to children. Yeah, those little Japanese things. Yeah, the, <laughs> you notice they didn't last. <laughs> okay. So let's turn to, say we managed to overcome some of these problems, and we, we do end up on Mars, as you say, in 2027. Listen, the whole point of this, and the whole point of, <laughs> the whole point of my book is to go, hello, people, we are going. This is not a fantasy. This is not something people are making up. I mean, we're going. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's happening. It just sounds very abstract to me still. Uh, it, well, wake up. If you think this isn't happening, you're dreaming. <laughs> this is happening. Okay, so Stephen's pretty convincing, hey? But safely launching people is one thing. The living in space for the nine-month journey is another there are several things you have to contend with. Radiation, extreme temperatures and microgravity. Scientists have managed to overcome all but the last one and it's a serious issue. 
Stanley G. Love spent two weeks in space and lost an incredible eight pounds of muscle because of microgravity. Here's his story. 787, 31 left, left Bravo, right Juliet, go short of Zulu. You get strapped in two and a half to three hours before you launch. So you have plenty of time to think about whether that was really a good idea. What was going through your mind? Well, the usual two sort of astronauts' prayers were the, the standard one is, I really hope I don't screw up. And not everybody admits it, but many people are also hoping they don't get blown up. Launching from the ground to reaching orbit takes about eight minutes. And during that time, there are milestones that you're sort of checking off, places where you say, okay, from this point on, if we lose an engine, we're going to fly across the Atlantic and land in Africa, whereas before that, if we'd lost an engine, we would have tried to turn around and land back in Florida. There was also a milestone that my commander read off to us over the headsets. Uh, He made a little congratulatory statement for us rookies on board, congratulating us on making it to space and officially becoming astronauts. And when the engines cut off and you're floating in orbit, that's 40% of the risk of your entire space mission has just been retired in those eight minutes. So you get a good feeling thinking, this just got about twice as safe as it used to be when I was sitting on the pad eight minutes ago. So that's a great feeling. Floating in your straps is just amazing. And then the next thought to hit you is, it is now time to get to work. Paint me a picture of life in space, I imagine microgravity plays havoc on all sorts of things in terms of how you sleep, but also how you eat and shower. Shower? Who said anything about showers? Oh, blimey. Two weeks without a shower? Uh, Well, imagine turning off the gravity and turning on the shower. Water would go flying everywhere. So if you want to take a bath, it's going to be a sponge bath. But you're right. Daily life really has a lot of changes when you're in microgravity, Um, especially at first when it's disorienting. I mean, there's a few fun aspects, especially after a couple of days you get used to it. So you can actually put your pants on both legs at the same time in microgravity. But getting into bed, setting up a bed takes a long time. You're setting up a sleeping bag, basically, that's uh, attached to the wall or the floor or the ceiling, if you like. Changing clothes is hard. Eating is hard. Um, most of our foods are in sort of packets, and you kind of cut open a corner and kind of nibble, or, or if it's a liquid stuff you can kind of suck the contents out Um, but it just takes a long time to get anything done going to the bathroom can take half an hour (laughs) especially the first couple of times the biggest surprise on the whole flight for me was not during the flight but after landing as your system gets used to being in gravity again you can be very dizzy like your head spinning And I didn't quite expect that. I expected some of the other effects to feel kind of weak, maybe sick to my stomach. I did not expect to be dizzy. But in general, we were very, very well prepared for our flight. And folks who had been there came back and told us about their experiences. So there were not very many surprises. You're mentioning the effects of microgravity there. And there's lots of talk about uh, the effects on bone density and muscle wastage. Was this something you encountered after two weeks when you returned back to Earth? Absolutely, but I was a bad astronaut and I did not do my exercise. But I had ample time to regret that when I came home. So I lost eight pounds of muscle, almost all out of my legs. 
if I went again, I would not blow off my exercise because it made a huge difference. And that was on only two weeks. You can imagine if you were up there for, you know, 12 times longer than that, being up there for six months. How long did it take you to recover those eight pounds of muscle? Several months. Two weeks, eight pounds and several months of hard work. If we're going to set foot on Mars, astronauts would be travelling in microgravity for nine months. And so if they lost £16 a month, well, there wouldn't be much left of them, would there? It's true that Stanley didn't do his exercise, but what could we expect for those who did? Neurosurgeon Mark Wilson. Well, there's different studies, but on average, the studies seem to show that people lose between 1% and 5% of their bone mineral density per month, that is, during microgravity. That's quite a lot if you're going to be spending nine months travelling somewhere. We don't know whether it plateaus off, and some of the evidence from the uh, International Space Station says suggests that it does. But uh, if it's not going to plateau off, then you're obviously going to have quite a lot of loss before you arrive. The problem is that Mars does have gravity. Not as much as Earth, but enough. And that means you can't lose too much muscle and bone density. Otherwise, you won't be able to walk around on the surface. There's a horrible phrase I've heard used to describe the problems of microgravity. And that is, you won't trip and break a bone. You'll break a bone and then trip. I.e. your bones are so thin and weak, gravity snaps them. Well, because they aren't exercising in a normal way, and by that I mean when you normally exercise, you're walking or you're running, you have constant impact exercise. That's what helps bone turn over effectively. Uh, Because they haven't got that, they lose bone mineral density. And the other thing they haven't got is gravity pulling blood into the tissues. Uh, So even when um, the people have exercised uh, in space, for example, uh, just running on a treadmill with braces to hold them on it, they still lose bone mineral density and muscle mass because although they have impact exercise, they haven't got the gravitational force pulling blood into their legs. Uh, So those are the two things. It's blood flow and impact exercise that are required to maintain uh, bone mineral density muscle mass and we don't really know enough at the moment in terms of whether we can optimize things with hormonal treatments or with additional calcium and vitamin d and things like that Uh, it does seem to be that really to maintain bone mineral density muscle mass you have to be using them and so whilst drugs might offer a small benefit it's unlikely to be the sole solution but bone density isn't mark's main concern My area of of research is what happens to the brain uh, in microgravity and hypoxia. And what happens is is that because you haven't got gravity pulling blood into your legs, you get this fluid shift and we think that the intracranial pressure rises. I think what's happening is is that you've got this uh, reduced ability to drain venous blood. And if if you're sitting here now, you're putting about a litre of blood into your head every minute and a litre of blood has to get out every minute as well. And when you've not got gravity helping that, uh, you can't drain blood quick enough. Now, what's happening, we're finding in longer space missions now, the chronic changes that are occurring are actually causing another phenomenon, which is known as VIP, Visual Impairment Intracranial Pressure in Space, where the astronauts are losing peripheral vision. And uh, this is also a a long-term problem that could be an issue in a mission such as one to Mars. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Greer Jackson. On this edition of the podcast, we're on a mission to Mars. So far, it sounds like a pretty terrifying prospect for the astronauts. Vision loss, bone loss, muscle loss, to mention a few. Say we do find a way to overcome these issues, though, and we land on the surface of the red planet with bones intact. We then have a series of other threats to worry about because it's not a particularly hospitable place. 
Stephen Petranik again. On Earth, you need food, shelter, clothing, and water to survive. On Mars, you need food, shelter, clothing, and water, and oxygen. So the only thing that's really missing on Mars, basically, is oxygen. You have some other problems, like you have significant radiation on Mars, so you have to shield yourself from it. You have to shield yourself from solar radiation. You get a terrible sunburn in about five minutes on Mars. Um, you have to shield yourself from solar radiation. That's a simple problem of just having walls that are thick enough or staying out of the sun, building your environment underground, building your environment in a lava cave, building your environment on the side of a crater wall where the sun doesn't shine on you. You have another significant problem, which is cosmic rays. These are very highly charged particles, and by that we mean they're moving with a lot of energy at a high rate of speed. So you've got protons and neutrons and electrons, basically stripped-out atoms, and we don't even know where these things come from, for sure. But they're consistent in the universe, and that everywhere you go, we've got them. And they're a big problem, because when they pass through your body, they're causing a lot of damage. So you have to be shielded from them. It takes a lot of shielding. Six feet of solid steel is probably not enough. You don't have a magnetosphere on Mars like you do on Earth that protects you from cosmic rays. Your atmosphere on Mars is one one-hundredth as thick as Earth's, so you don't have an atmospheric blanket. So you have to build in your own protection on Mars from radiation. That is a physical problem that is solved by simply having walls of your environment thick enough. Not a big problem. Big problem is breathing. You can't breathe the CO2 on, a, on Mars. Um, so we have to create our own oxygen. So NASA has invented, actually a guy at MIT named Dr. Michael Hecht invented this machine called MOXIE, M-O-X-I-E. That's an acronym, which I can never remember what it stands <laughs> for. But it's, a, it's basically a reverse fuel cell that strips carbon out of the CO2 in the Martian atmosphere and leaves you with pure oxygen. Now, that design, MOXIE, that little box, is designed to be enlarged and upscaled by a factor of 100. So NASA's intentions were to use it to make rocket fuel, because you need oxygen for it to oxidize rocket fuel, on Mars for a return trip from Mars. So NASA had plans to send a large version of MOXIE to Mars with storage tanks, let it sit there for two years before humans came, and make a lot of oxygen for rocket fuel. Well, turns out that works very nicely to allow us, give us something to breathe. And that solves the biggest problem on Mars. The next biggest problem is you need a lot of water. There's a lot of frozen water on Mars, tons of it. There may be unfrozen water not too far below the surface of the planet that we will be able to drill and access. But water is not a problem. Uh, unfreezing it and getting enough energy to unfreeze it is a little bit of a problem. But basically, these are not high-tech problems. These are low-tech problems. So you're confident then? Very confident. That may be because we are stood right next to the first ever Mars show home. Sat on the turf at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, I asked Marit Kula to give me a tour. Okay. There's no airlock. Well, there is an air. <laughs> this is the airlock. But there's no... Do you want to do the sound effect? <laughs> I mean, that was pretty good, right? Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Okay. okay. <laughs> So we're standing outside the Mars home and it looks like a sort of a, an igloo made of red Martian 
bricks, basically. But we're going to go inside now. First, we have to go through an airlock, which will probably be cannibalised from one of the spacecraft. So reusing everything once we get to the surface of Mars. So welcome to the Mars home. Thank goodness it's absolutely freezing on Mars. Here we are in the Mars home. We've got uh, everything an astronaut could possibly need. It's quite a compact environment, but also designed to be to feel as spacious as possible. And in here, you've got everything that you might need because uh, obviously you, you've got to bring everything with you. So we've got a little kitchen area down here with a microwave. I see, and a pie. There is a pie that will probably be freeze dried for the journey, uh, but also there's a little bit of salad, which hopefully is grown here on Mars in Martian soil. Uh, there's also a coffee maker. Um, and I think hopefully again that could be quite hipster maybe you could grow your coffee in Martian soil so it'd be absolutely hipster authentic coffee (laughs) I'm a foodie so if we're going to be living on Mars good grub is paramount Taking food to Mars, um, you know, carrying anything over that distance is very expensive. So the rations will be very carefully controlled and, um, and, and the logistics beforehand will be worked out so that everybody gets exactly the right amounts of carbohydrates, proteins, etc., all the vitamins they need. Of course, the idea is that we hope we'll be able to grow crops on Mars in covered greenhouses. We know already um, that we can grow earth plants in um, simulated Martian soil with fertiliser added and you get things like potatoes and tomatoes that are actually edible. So um, hopefully they'll be growing things there as well to add variety to their diet. But they will be, they will be having a very controlled diet, so they're not going to get fat um, and they're not going to be eating junk food. She's thinking, as soon as you said fat, I just had an avocado for lunch. I'm thinking, no avocados on Mars. Who knows? Maybe avocados <laughs> will grow really well in Martian soil, in which case that could be your you know, end-of-the-week treat, half an avocado. The other thing that's paramount in my eyes, a good night's kip. You've also got uh, a rest area, so this is where astronauts can relax and also to personalise their area. You're going to have to take everything you need with you, but to keep costs and, and transport down probably what they're going to have is a lot of 3D printing. So uh, over here in the corner, we have a 3D printer just by the desk, uh, and that will be able to print out all sorts of different tools and even personal items that the astronauts might want to to personalise their space. So instead of taking everything with them, uh, a new tool can be downloaded uh, from Earth, take a few minutes for the radio signal to transmit the data, but then they can just print it out here on Mars. So very, very useful technology that I think will make things a lot easier for the astronauts. But also they're going to be working hard out on the surface. And if we come over here, um, you can see... We have a selection of uh, geologist tools and rocks. (laughs) So geology is going to be a big thing. We're going to want to understand the geological history of Mars and also to look for things like fossils of past life and even evidence of current life. So we've got here some rocks. These actually are real samples belonging to Professor Sanjeev Gupta from Imperial College, who's a geologist. Well, he's a geologist and he works on NASA's Curiosity Mars rover (gasps) mission. So these rocks are specially chosen to be the most similar rocks we can find on Earth two Mars rocks, so they're about as as good as you can get. Okay, and the final thing I want to talk about is the spacesuit, because we think about spacesuits as these clumpy, great, big Michelin Man-style things, and what you've got over there is nothing like that. 
Spacesuits on Mars, I think, will be a lot more slimline and probably a little bit sexier than the ones that we're used to seeing from the International Space Station or the Apollo missions. So those spacesuits are completely pressurised and it is like being inside a sort of a, a, a balloon, if you like. But the ones on Mars are going to use mechanical support to, to keep you held in against the, the, the lack of external pressure. Before. Absolutely. Mm. So they're going to be a lot more like wetsuits, perhaps with external support structures, maybe even a little bit of um, mechanical um, additions to, to help you to move around. The pre- they're they're going to be quite constrictive. They're going to really hold you in, a little bit like wearing a corset. Uh, and then, of course, you'll have a helmet, which will need to be pressurised. And I think there are uh, still issues to be worked through about how you marry the pressurised helmet bit with the more skin-tight wetsuit part of the, of the suit. But certainly they're going to look a lot different uh, and hopefully be a lot easier to move around in. Will still be an effort, though. You're going to be working against the pressurised uh, the uh, the constriction of the suit um, and so it will actually be quite good exercise when you're out there too possibly quite tiring so everything you possibly could need is here um, downstairs under under the room we're in now would be a sleeping area possibly for about four people and then also tunnels underground to connect you to other parts of the base and other um, Mars homes uh, and also of course we've got a little bit of greenery in here so this is great because it's a way of growing food it also provides a little bit of oxygen and also I think it just gives you a bit of a sense of home. being back home absolutely the psychology uh, of the astronauts will be hugely important so it's not just about their physical health it is about their mental health they're going to be uh, working in very close quarters for several years they all need to get on and I think they're all going to need a little bit of personal space to go and chill out and relax so one of the other things that we have in here uh, is a virtual reality headset so that they're going to be able to take some time out perhaps go on a virtual reality trip home interact with friends and family and just feel that they're not completely cut off from life here on earth now it's all very sleek and slimline and you know it's very compactly designed but do you think this is realistic an interpretation of what mars living on mars might be like who knows uh, over the next couple of decades how people will decide to design the interior of these places. But I think this is a pretty good guess. It's a bit like sort of Martian Ikea, if you like. It's all very sleek, very kind of scandy, quite stylish. Orange and white. Orange and white, quite bright, kind of cheery colours. Um, I would certainly be quite happy to um, have this as my office. And I think actually it's, it's nicer than a lot of London flats. So, you know, I think they're going to be pretty happy here. You've got all mod cons. And, you know, and you're also going to be part of one of the greatest adventures that humanity has ever undertaken. Your name will go down in history books. Absolutely. It's true, your name would go down in history books. But is it worth living underground? Never to feel the sun on your skin, the wind ruffle your hair, or even just to be able to step outside and inhale the sweet scent of nature? Not for me personally, but it may be that it's not like that forever. Longer term, people like Patrick hope to terraform Mars. Well, terraforming just means making Mars more like Earth. And to make it more like Earth, there's a very simple problem on Mars. The atmosphere is not thick enough and it's not breathable. So if you were to make a large, essentially a solar sail that was shiny on one side, it would work as a mirror. You can put it into what is called a statite orbit around Mars, and that means basically the sun is trying to pull it away from Mars, but Mars' gravity is trying to pull it towards Mars, so it stays in one place. And then you point it at the south pole of Mars where there's a lot of frozen carbon dioxide. The frozen carbon dioxide is what I would call not very frozen. In other words, ice at 
32 degrees, it's just sort of barely frozen. You heat it up just a little with the sun's rays, and it creates, guess what, a runaway greenhouse effect on Mars. More and more CO2. As more and more CO2 enters the atmosphere and the atmosphere becomes thicker, frozen water on Mars will begin to melt, especially around the equator, about 10 degrees above north latitude, 10 degrees south latitude. That band around Mars in the middle, the water will start melting. It might freeze at night. It might be an atmosphere that's kind of, or an environment that's a lot like Canada, where the water is not frozen during the day and some of it freezes at night. But when the water starts running freely on Mars and starts melting, water vapor will go into the atmosphere, which will create even more of a greenhouse effect. And you will get snow and you will get rain on Mars, just like we have on Earth. And as it gets warmer... And as you get flowing water, you'll be able to actually grow crops outdoors. And genetically modifying plants that we're familiar with on Earth, like corn and soybeans, where seem to plant everywhere, genetically modifying those so they can take in pure CO2 is not a big problem. So suddenly you'll be able to grow food supply on Mars. And you begin to get a very Earth-like planet. Now, there's a big problem, which is a breathable atmosphere. That is a really tough problem to solve, and that's a thousand-year problem. The question here, though, for me is, should we be doing that? Because what you're talking about is effectively climate change. When we are ruining our own planet through exactly this system, should we be going to another planet and changing it beyond recognition? I I understand I'm very sympathetic with that argument. Um, First of all, Mars is a dark, cold place. I do not believe there's any life on Mars. Uh, We're basically taking a rock in space And to say that it is crazy of us to try to make it more Earth-like is a crazy statement in and of itself. But here's the big surprise. Technology doesn't move all by itself and get better all by itself. It needs motivation. What we learn on Mars about terraforming Mars is going to allow us to come on Earth to stop using our atmosphere and our water as waste disposal systems. Because on Mars, you will not be allowed to have any waste disposal at all. You will have to recycle everything all the time. And the technologies we learn on Mars are going to make Earth a much better place much faster. A hugely positive aspect to come out of this mission. But would Stephen and Marek go themselves? I would. I'd go tomorrow. It would be the greatest adventure of a lifetime. You know, I think it would, Elon Musk is famous for saying, you know, I want to die on Mars, but not on impact. And I I agree with that. You know, I wouldn't mind dying on Mars. That would be a good place to go later in life. Great last adventure. I would be really happy to go and visit Mars. I would even go for a couple of years, but only if I could come back. The Earth is, I think, the most beautiful and amazing planet that we've discovered so far in the whole universe. Certainly, it's the most beautiful planet in the solar system. I have not finished exploring it, and I wouldn't want to give up on the Earth. So, yes, I would go to Mars for a trip, but I would definitely want to come back afterwards. As the only person who really knows what it's like to be so far from our home planet, I want to leave you with a rather illuminating thought from our astronaut, Stanley G. Love. Um, the things that really stick with me are, are how difficult it was to do that first spacewalk, first time out the hatch. Um, I have this memory of being finished with the spacewalk. We'd gotten our work done. I felt great um, waiting, in the air, waiting outside the airlock to come back inside. And just at that time in the mission, the, our, sh- our shuttle's orbit took us up over the uh, Pacific Ocean. 
and across the western part of the United States, which is where I grew up, and just having that immense tableau of scenery of all the world that I'd known growing up from Canada down to Baja, California. Um, so I could see everything, all the mountains, the valleys, the whole landscape there, and having that just come rolling up underneath me as we were finishing that spacewalk and feeling good about it, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience and something I'll remember for the rest of my life. It sounds beautiful. It is. I like to say, uh, and this is a strong statement coming from somebody with a background in astronomy, that the Earth is the most interesting thing in space. So I'm hoping that in the future more and more people can see what it's like to be in orbit, look down at the Earth, see what it really looks like, um, and observe our home as a planet rather than just as something you drive around to work and back every day. And I think it will make us all better people to have that experience. Would you stay or would you go? I think I probably enjoy eating avocados too much, but there are plenty of volunteers who disagree. So at least for some, the benefits outweigh the risks. I'll leave you to make up your own mind, though. Now, before you go, I just wanted to let you know that this is likely to be my last Naked Astronomy. I'm embarking on a new mission. You can follow me on Twitter at Greer Jackson if you want to stay in touch. But I highly recommend listening to our other science podcasts to get your fill. The Naked Scientists have been going for over 15 years now, producing programming for 52 weeks a year. So there's bound to be a great number of podcasts you'll love. Head to nakedscientist.com and have a browse. Music this week was by Duke Deck. You can make your own at dukedeck.com. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greer Jackson. Thank you to all my guests and thank you to you at home for listening. It's been a truly magical journey and I'm so glad to have shared it with you.